Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight, not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. That's Chris Christie with a direct attack on Donald Trump. And Christie wasn't the only Republican presidential candidate to address the former president's absence from last night's debate stage. There weren't that many other attacks, though, but we'll bring you that and other big moments from last night. Donald Trump actually wasn't watching because he was instead on a stage by himself in Michigan, speaking to a crowd of mostly non-union auto workers and criticizing the union strike against Detroit's Big Three. And meanwhile, in Washington, it appears that far-right Republicans in the House are ready to shut down the government over one key funding item. We'll tell you what that is just ahead. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early on this Thursday, September 28th. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for starting your day with us. We've got a big show ahead. And we begin this morning with the second Republican presidential debate, which began with a video montage questioning the state of today's GOP and a very direct message about Donald Trump. 40 years after Reagan's landslide re-election, the Republican Party faces critical questions. What does it mean to be a conservative? We fight for the truth. We are not going to worry about what the left and the media say about us. What is the key to a thriving economy? It's innovation, not regulation. America could do for anyone what she's done for me. We will stop the spending. We will stop the borrowing. We will stop the earmarks. What is America's role in the world? We need to build a military fitted to the widening challenges in an ever more dangerous world. Sometimes you avoid war by showing the tough. And the country faces even more challenges. Would Reagan even recognize the country in which we now live? The second debate came as polls show that Trump holds a massive lead over all of his Republican opponents. Last night, some of those candidates went on the attack against Trump, who once again decided to skip the event. During the Trump administration, they added $7 trillion, $7 trillion in national debt. Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record. Donald Trump hides behind the walls of his golf clubs and won't show up here to answer questions. You're afraid of being on this stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. You know, my former running mate, Donald Trump, actually has a plan to start to consolidate more power in Washington, D.C., consolidate more power in the executive branch. Donald Trump said Vladimir Putin was brilliant and a great leader. This is the person who is murdering people in his own country and now not having enough blood. He's now going to Ukraine to murder innocent civilians. He should be here explaining his comments to try to say that pro-life protections are somehow a terrible thing. I want him to look into the eyes and tell people who've been fighting this fight for a long time. I'm not sure that Donald Duck line really worked. In a fight for relevance, the GOP candidates spent Plenty of time yelling and talking over each other, 
with the debate stage at times devolving into complete chaos repeatedly throughout the night. Thank you for speaking while I'm interrupting. Literally. While I'm speaking. Well, literally. No, you said by painful. If I may finish, you can't be on both sides. Gentlemen, you'll have your turn. One of the challenges we should have a focus on the issues that matter. We know this in China. Everybody knows that. If I may address. Let's focus on holding Joe Biden accountable. That's what we need to be I actually agree with Ron DeSantis. speaking at the same time? A high level of discourse there. Thank you for speaking while I'm interrupting. Joining us now, national politics reporter for The Hill, Julia Manchester. She is in Simi Valley, California this morning, where she covered the Republican debate, which was held at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library there. Julia, thanks for staying up late for us tonight. Uh, let's start with just broad strokes. Give me this. There's this, we, we know the polls. These candidates are all well, well behind Donald Trump, and we're desperate for some sort of moment, some sort of breakout moment or some sort of momentum. So give us your overview of a couple of the winners and losers of last night's debate. Yeah, you know, Jonathan, I think it was sort of unclear who the winners or the losers were. Um, you know, according to a lot of people I chatted with in the Republican world, it seemed to be a very muddled debate in terms of responses. Look, one consistent winner I heard was Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley is someone who in the last debate, and she did it, I think I would argue last night, she presented herself as the only adult in the room, essentially trying to rise above the fray. She didn't speak as much as maybe some of the other candidates, but she had... Um, um, some of the more memorable knockout moments, particularly against Vivek Ramaswamy. There was that moment when he was defending his decision to join TikTok, despite candidates attacking him for his past business ties to China. She said, listening to you essentially makes me feel dumber every day. Um, that was certainly a moment. Um, you know, Ron DeSantis himself, uh, I don't think he had a bad night, but I don't necessarily ha think he had a knockout night. He didn't do poorly, but he didn't get get a lot of buzzy moments like Nikki Haley did. And, you know, I guess the verdict is still out on Donald Duck, but people are certainly talking about that moment uh, from Chris Christie. So, and, you know, Tim Scott also coming in and not holding back any punches, really trying to get out of his comfort zone, be a bit more assertive. Remember in the first debate, he sort of fell out of the fray or seemed to fall out of the fray. Um, but this time he was very much trying to get himself mm -hmm. out and center. Yeah, you're right. Scott was more or less invisible the first time around. And you're right. A couple of Republicans texted me overnight, too, saying they thought Haley was the best. Maybe she wasn't quite as good as she was the first night, the first debate. But one wonders if she's going to be the never Trump hope that there can be a consolidation of support around her. But Trump, of course, was his presence was felt last night. He was a couple thousand miles away in, in Michigan. And look, some candidates did take him on in terms of his lack of presence last night and a little bit on his record. But did you see anything there that's going to move the needle in terms of these polls? I don't think so. One thing that I think gives maybe DeSantis supporters hope is that he was more aggressive in attacking Donald Trump publicly and on stage, talking about him essentially dodging the debate stage, not being on the stage and talking about his record on abortion. This is something the DeSantis campaign has really been hating Donald Trump on, even though Donald Trump is arguably a, was a huge player in overturning Roe versus Wade. His recent comments about the elected 
sustainability argument around abortion and not embracing a six week ban has certainly um, gotten some or made him receive some ire from the right. So Ron DeSantis really trying to capitalize on that. I think a lot of his supporters were happy with him taking a more aggressive tone against the president. Yeah. And DeSantis, there's been questions, open speculation that DeSantis who was once considered the, the front-runner to unseat Trump, may not even make it to Iowa. So he, he certainly, his team has to hope that last night's debate uh, halts his slide. Um, let's talk about Vice President Pence for a moment. Uh, you know, how do you think he did last night? He's another one. He's betting everything on Iowa. He, he struggled uh, to get much in the way of traction, though. He has been willing to take on his former running mate. How do you think he fared? You know, I think Pence, like many of the other candidates, probably had a better night during the first debate in Wisconsin. Um, You know, I think he performed much better than expected. This time around, though, we did see him try to land some punches. But at the same time, I don't think they really stuck the same way. There was, um, you know, a really awkward moment at one point when Chris Christie, he was trying to piggyback essentially on a joke or, you know, I don't know if you you wouldn't want to call it a joke, more of an insult Chris Christie made against the first lady um, talking about her status as a teacher's union member and talking about how the president has been sleeping with a member of the teachers union. Uh, uh, Pence tried to awkwardly say, well, I've been sleeping with a teacher for the past 30 years. It was a weird moment. And that moment is what I think a lot of people are talking about right now when they're asked about Pence. I don't think that's necessarily something he wants at this point. Yeah, that was a deeply cringy moment to be candid. And it does seem like at every cycle, there's one candidate on the debate stage who the rest of them don't like. It is so clearly Vivek Ramaswamy uh, in this time around. National politics reporter for The Hill, Julia Manchester, again, thank you for doing Yeoman's work and bringing us some firsthand (laughs) reporting from the debate. We will speak to you again soon. Donald Trump, of course, was absent from last night's debate and delivered a speech instead to hundreds of supporters in Michigan. Trump focused on union jobs and the Biden administration's effort to transition toward electric vehicles. That issue, of course, has been a key part of the United Auto Workers strike against General Motors, Ford and Stellantis, the big three. The union is also demanding higher wages, but Trump told them they're picketing for the wrong thing and then asked for their endorsement. To the striking workers, I support you and your goal of fair wages and greater stability, and I truly hope you get a fair deal for yourselves and your families. But if your union leaders will not demand that Crooked Joe repeal his electric vehicle mandate immediately, then it doesn't matter what hourly word you get. It just doesn't make a damn bit of difference, because in two to three years, you will not have one job in this state. In other words, your current negotiations don't mean as much as you think. I mean, I watch you out there with the pickets, but I don't think you're picketing for the right thing. But if they endorse me, your leadership, you can tell them I said it, although I have a feeling they may be watching tonight. Not much applause for those remarks. And let's be clear, last night's speech from Trump took place at a non-union auto parts company outside of Detroit. He addressed an audience of more than 300 that appeared to include only a few striking auto workers. Trump's speech comes just one day after President Biden made history, becoming the first sitting president in modern times to meet with striking workers on the picket line. Trump did not visit any striking workers. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, an update on the case that could strip Donald Trump and his sons of their ability to operate businesses in New York State. Plus, we'll bring you a preview of the first impeachment inquiry hearing into President Biden, the possible strategy for House Republicans 
We'll also take a look at the president's major speech on democracy that's coming later today. All of those stories and a check on weather and sports when we come right back. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Welcome back. As we turn to some of the morning's other top headlines, the New York judge who could potentially shutter Donald Trump's business operations in New York State says he is not yet, not yet ready to make a decision on that matter. There's been a lot of speculation about this. In a pre-trial hearing yesterday, Judge Arthur Engeron declined to elaborate on the real-world ramifications of ruling he had made on Tuesday in a case brought by the New York, New York State Attorney General's office. That ruling found that Trump, his two oldest sons, and his company were liable of committing fraud over the course of many years. The judge has already granted Attorney General Letitia James one punishment she sought, which was to strip Trump of his business certificates in the state. As a result, the former president could be forced to give up all of his New York properties, including his signature Trump Tower, his home of many years. Now, whether or not that happens will be decided by the same judge during a non-jury trial, which is set to begin next week. Now, today, in just hours, the Republican-led House Oversight Committee will hold its first impeachment hearing on President Joe Biden. The New York Times is reporting that top House Republicans are eyeing potential impeachment charges of bribery and abuse of power while trying to tie the president to his son, Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. That's according to some senior House officials familiar with their plans. The Times points out, however, that the lawmakers do not have evidence of either potential charge. And House Republicans have really struggled to link any of Hunter Biden's business dealings to his father, or get anywhere close to revealing proof of high crimes and misdemeanors, which is what impeachment is supposed to be about. Elsewhere on Capitol Hill, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez and his wife have pleaded not guilty to accusations of taking part in a bribery scheme. This, as the number of Democratic senators calling for him to resign continues to grow. NBC News correspondent Jonathan Dienst has more. Holding hands with his wife Nadine, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez left federal court to a crush of cameras and a handful of protesters. Earlier, Menendez, his wife, and two businessmen pleaded not guilty to charges they took part in a wide-ranging bribery scheme. The FBI says Senator Menendez and his wife got these gold bars, piles of cash, and a Mercedes in exchange for government favors. 
The senator released on $100,000 bail, his wife on $250,000. Sources familiar with the matter say the FBI is investigating if Egyptian intelligence services played any role in the alleged bribe scheme in an effort to get non-public U.S. government information from Menendez, then chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. Meanwhile, President Biden still silent on the Menendez case, while the number two Democrat in the Senate, Dick Durbin, added his name to the growing list of Democrats calling for Menendez to resign. Top Senate Democrat Chuck Schumer criticizing Menendez, but not calling on him to step down. For senators, there's a much, much higher standard. And clearly, when you read the indictment, Senator Menendez fell way, way below that standard. That's NBC's Jonathan Deanst reporting. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, we'll take a look at sports. We'll have a glance at the postseason chase in Major League Baseball and an incredible feat by one of the game's best players. Plus, the biggest storyline in the NFL has absolutely nothing to do with anything that's happening on the field. You probably can guess who we're talking about. We'll explain all that next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. You just saw it. Ronald Acuna Jr. is the founding member of baseball's 4070 club, becoming the first player ever to hit 40 home runs and swipe 70 bases in a single season. He's also the stalwart of my fantasy team as it goes for a championship this week. Acuna's steal set up a walk-off win for the NLE's champion Braves. They beat the Cubs 6-5 in 10 innings and clinched a first-round bye and home field advantage through at least the NLCS. Meanwhile, that loss for the Cubs dropped Chicago into a tie with the Miami Marlins for the third and final NL wildcard spot, and I believe the Marlins hold that tiebreaker. To Seattle now. The Houston Astros took a big step toward their seventh consecutive postseason berth, extending their lead over the Mariners in the AL wildcard race with a series-clinching victory. That 8-3 win in front of a bereft Seattle crowd moves the Astros one and a half games in front of the Mariners for that final wildcard spot. And in Toronto, the New York Yankees are eliminated from the playoff contention. Oh, that's too bad. But ace Garrett Cole is still vying for his first Cy Young award. Cole put the final touches on his bid with a complete game shutout to finish the season with a 15-4 record and an AL best 2.63 ERA. Yankees beat the Blue Jays. Six zip. Let's move to the NFL now, where Sunday night's game at MetLife Stadium, just outside New York City, could have millions of new football fans watching NBC. 
Why? You know why. That's because Taylor Swift will reportedly attend the matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs and the New York Jets. Swift was at the Chiefs game in Kansas City on Sunday, adding fuel to the rumors that she and Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey are starting to date. It's a primetime matchup in New York. No wonder the NFL didn't flex this game out of the Sunday night spot, even though the Chiefs are going to crush the Jets. We should note week four of the NFL regular season kicks off tonight in Green Bay, where the Packers will host the Detroit Lions. Angie Lastman is here, and Angie's a meteorologist. She's also a Lions fan, but she's more importantly our resident Taylor Swift expert. So, Angie, what do we make of Swift Kelsey? Listen, I wear many hats. I like the the combo. I listened to his podcast yesterday with his brother to see what he was going to say about Taylor Swift. He didn't say much, but it was kind of cute, the little tidbits that he gave, a little nice chemistry. To this point, it's been the most compelling storyline of a pretty boring NFL season. And so. they just got a whole lot of new viewers, right? I mean, his jersey sales Team say NBC. it all. There I like go. it. We'll see what happens with that. We're also going to uh, see what happens with this uh, rain that's unfortunately going to get back into the picture for folks in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. I know that's not what you want to hear after we just finally got some sunshine yesterday. You'll have a little bit of dry skies early in the day today, but by late this afternoon into the evening hours, we'll start to see a low kind of shift a little farther to the north. And that means that we add in some rain chances across uh, that region here as we get into the day tomorrow and even Saturday. Drier skies will be on tap, though, by Sunday. We'll also have the potential for some coastal flooding because we have really strong onshore winds. And how about this? A little treat. September supermoon. This is also known as the harvest moon. Of course, this is uh, uh, something that you'll want to take note of early into the morning hours tomorrow. So into the overnight hours, early morning, say 5, 6 a.m. That's when you'll have the best viewing. And we're looking at the middle of the country to see really clear skies That'll also be the case out west, so a little bit of a treat. It's our last supermoon of the year, so last chance for 2023. Angela Asman, thank you for that. Good luck to your Lions tonight. And it occurs to me, is remember the Lions that Taylor Swift could date? Wouldn't that be even better for Let's work on it. Let me think about that. All right, we'll come back to you tomorrow. (laughs) Still ahead, we'll dive back into the top moments from last night's Republican presidential debate. Plus, the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff responds to Donald Trump's suggestion that he should be executed for his communications with top Chinese officials. We'll show you what General Mark Milley had to say when we come right back. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It is coming up on 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for being with us. The outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the nation's highest ranking military officer and advisor to the president, General Mark Milley, is now speaking out after former President Trump suggested that Milley deserves to be executed for treason for communicating with his Chinese counterpart at the end of the Trump administration. Trump made those comments in a rambling post on his Truth Social platform that reads in part this. This is an act so egregious that, in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. Take a listen to General Milley's response. Look, I'm, I'm a soldier. Uh, I've been faithful and loyal to the Constitution of the United States for 44 and a half years. Uh, and my family and I have sacrificed greatly for this country, my mother and father before them. And, you know, as, as much as these comments are directed at me, it, it's also directed at the institution of the military. Um, and there's, there's 2.1 million of us in uniform. And, and the American people can take it to the bank that all of us, every single one of us, from private to general, we're loyal to that Constitution and we'll never turn our back on it no matter what. No matter what the threats, uh, no matter what the humiliation, no matter what. If we're willing to die 
for that document, if we're willing to deploy to combat, if we're willing to uh, lose an arm, a leg, an eye, uh, to protect and, and support and defend that document and protect the American people, then we're willing to live for it too. So I'm not going to comment directly on those those things, but I can tell you that uh, this military, uh, this soldier, me, will never turn our back on that Constitution. But for the record, was there anything inappropriate or treasonous about the calls you made to China? Absolutely not. Zero. None. Milley's call was reportedly to calm rising tensions during the final chaotic final days of the Trump administration and to assure China that the U.S. was not planning to go to war. Joining us now, former aide to the George W. Bush White House and State Departments, our friend Elise Jordan. She is an MSNBC political analyst as well. So, I mean, let's just start there with uh, General Milley's pushback. And I think this is a moment that we shouldn't just let slide by what Donald Trump said, calling for execution of the nation's highest ranking general. It's unbelievable, and we absolutely need to cover this. We need to cover it in all seriousness. We need to take him seriously and literally because he is calling for the execution of the former head of the armed services. It's incredible. I don't want to say egregious because it's worse than egregious. It's borderline treasonous to use to to approach using his power in such a way as that he would execute an American for a crime that wouldn't be on trial. It's and again, what it says about the armed services and the relationship between Donald Trump and every institution is so profoundly disturbing. He thinks that he alone is supposed to dictate and mandate. Right. That they serve him rather than the Constitution. And we know uh, we 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 know from personal experience that some of Trump's supporters take what he says very seriously. And there have been threats that have come from that. And and Millie would just be the latest to receive them. And this is why we need to cover this as a threat, as taking on the American Constitution. He is not running a campaign. He's waging a battle to stay out of jail at this point, given all of the indictments that are raining down on him and getting his business future stripped in New York State. Yeah, we should take him at his word when he says he's going to be retribution. It's very clear that's what he has in mind here. So this would have been, you'd think, a place that other Republicans could have delivered some blows to Donald Trump last night on the debate stage. They could have said... The former president is called for the execution of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Of course, that didn't come up. Neither did, as you just said, the fact that Trump may have his businesses taken away from him in New York State. You did watch the debate last night. Those were left unspoken. But what were some of your takeaways? How do you think they did? I think there's maybe a 1% chance of any other nominee emerging against Trump. Maybe some freak event happens and bumps Trump from his throne, but... Given what I saw last night, there is not anyone who's going to be able to stand up in any force and match his support within the GOP electorate, save some dramatic freak event. It uh, You didn't see any candidates who were really willing to attack him. They attacked his lack of uh showing up. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, they attacked him a bit on the wall and how little of it got built. But you didn't see any other attacks on his legal problems that are going to cloud a general election and harm his electability. Yeah, it seems like that's an argument to make. Hey, we all like him, but he can't win. He's got problems. He's going to be busy. Pick me instead. That's exactly (laughs) right. Elise, you're coming back for Morning Joe, so we'll have more of your debate thoughts then. Thank you for joining us. Now, coming up here on Way Too Early, we're going to turn to business news and CNBC joins us with the stories that are making headlines this morning and some insight on the markets, which are back in the red again ahead of the opening bell. It's been a bad month for Wall Street. We'll get a sense as whether that's going to continue. That's all straight ahead. 
Time now for business, and for that, look who it is. Let's bring in CNBC's Juliana Talabam, live from London. Juliana, great to see you. Um, less great how, where Wall Street's been. A lot of days in the red. Stocks were mixed bag yesterday. Futures barely budged. What can we expect today after a week of what has already been really steep losses? Well, John, it is indeed great to see you. But as for markets, it has been a lot more downbeat. As you said, U.S. stocks and government bonds are on course for their worst month of the year. So both bonds and stocks have been suffering losses recently. Yesterday, we saw a continued sell-off in the bond market. U.S. equities, though, a little bit uh, more resilient. We had the S&P, the Dow, and the Nasdaq, and little change on the session. This morning, more of the same. U.S. futures muted at this stage. Uh, One sector to watch today, energy. Energy stocks yesterday put in the strongest performance among the sectors amid a surge in the price of oil. Now, overnight, one story that we've been following, Evergrande shares were suspended um, amid reports that the chairman of Evergrande is under surveillance. This, of course, the embattled property company in China. So one stock that did perform well yesterday was Peloton, one of the darlings of the early pandemic. Uh, Its shares uh, saw a 15 percent spike. What do we think prompted this? A huge move in Peloton shares, and it seems to be tied to an announcement yesterday between Peloton and Lululemon. The two companies are coming together for a five-year global partnership. Under the deal, Lululemon is going to make co-branded clothing that Peloton will then sell online on its website and in its retail stores. Peloton's fitness content, meanwhile, will be offered to Lululemon Studio Mirror users. I wasn't too familiar with this product, but it's an interactive smart fitness device. They've struggled to get off the ground with it, and ultimately, Lululemon and will discontinue selling it by the end of the year. But for now, they're going to start offering Peloton content on it. For Peloton, the partnership will help to drive traffic both to its website and um, in terms of sales of its hardware. And as you said, Peloton shares soared on this news. And lastly, we've obviously been talking a lot about cars in the context of the UAW strike. But there was this headline yesterday. Two major car makers are recalling more than three million vehicles. Uh, Tell us about it. We've got Kia and Hyundai uh, recalling 3.37 million vehicles in the U.S. due to the risk of engine fires. Now, what specifically is going on? Internal brake fluid leaks can cause an electrical short that could lead to a fire. They have seen dozens of these incidents reported related to this issue. So far, neither company has reports of any crashes, injuries, or fatalities tied to the recalls, but they are clearly concerned, and the car companies are telling owners of these vehicles to park outside away from structures until repairs are complete. If you are the owner of um, any Kia or Handy vehicles, Kia has recalled uh, 1.73 million cars, various models from 2010 to 2017. Um, Hyundai is recalling 1.64 million vehicles from 2011 through 2015. So do check it out if you own any of those models. All right. We appreciate that. Heads up. CNBC's Juliana Talabam, live from London. Thank you, as always. Talk to you again soon. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, we'll turn back to politics. The latest on the looming government shutdown. Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton joins us to talk about that and the funding fight for Ukraine aid. We'll be right back with The Lawmaker next. Welcome back to Way Too Early on a busy Thursday morning. Congress appears no closer to a solution to fund the government with less than three days to go until a shutdown begins. House Republicans yesterday squashed the bipartisan funding plan from the Senate. 
with hardline conservatives criticizing it for having aid for Ukraine. Meanwhile, the House GOP is pushing forward with a plan to appease hardline conservatives with steeper spending cuts, which is likely to fail in the Democratic-led Senate, even if it were to somehow pass the House. This all comes as Republicans in both chambers are playing the blame game, despite beginning this process with the deal already in place between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden on how to fund the government. The House is working on passing 73% of all the appropriation bills of the job we're supposed to do by Thursday. We're bringing up on Friday ability to fund the government, but at the same time secure our border. So yes, we're doing our job. So what does the president have to do with that? If he wants to sit and hide in the White House and put the government into a shutdown, that's on him. You have $6.2 billion for Ukraine. Um, they do nothing to secure our southern border. Uh, that is just a non-starter. The Senate needs to get real. What, what You've all seen the images at the southern border. It has to stop immediately. And this government should not continue to be funding funded if we don't secure our border. This is a huge mess, and here we are at midnight, the night before an exam, and we've just started to study. And there was really no need for this to happen the way that it went down. And I, I've been frustrated by the process. I thought we would be better than this. Um, and here we are scrambling, and no one knows what's next. So, Mr. President, a vote against a standard short-term funding measure is a vote against paying over a billion dollars in salary for Border Patrol and ICE agents working to track down lethal fentanyl and tame our open borders. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He serves on the Armed Services Committee and is a combat veteran who served four tours with the U.S. Marines. Thank you, Congressman, for being here this morning. So let's talk about the possibility for this shutdown. There's new polling that suggests that Americans would basically blame everyone. 32% say that everyone is blamed equally, and then you have another 29% say it's the GOP, 14 Democrats. Uh, but as many have noted, there was a deal already struck between McCarthy, the House Speaker, and President Biden a few months ago, and now it seems like the GOP's gotten cold feet. What's your assessment of where things stand, and is there any way that the government's not shutting down in a few days? Well, look, it really is up to Republicans, and it's up to Republicans in the House, because in the Senate, uh, Democrats and Republicans came together, 77 to 19. So a lot of Republicans and Democrats, the overwhelming majority of the Senate, voting to fund the government, they're sending that bill over to the House. All we need to do is under Speaker McCarthy, take up that bill and have a bipartisan vote on getting it passed. And you would see a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats in the House doing exactly what happened in the Senate and averting the shutdown. The issue is infighting in the Republican Party. The people who won't even let Speaker McCarthy take this bill up for a vote because they say he'll lose his job. So this is completely bickering among Republicans. And unfortunately, for those of us Democrats who want to do the right thing, who want to join with Republicans to make sure our government gets funded, there's not much we can do if Speaker McCarthy won't even put that bill on the floor. So what do you make, Congressman, of where things stand with funding to Ukraine? We, there are support in the Senate. Uh, about two-thirds of the House yesterday voted to have it in. Um, but there are, of course, very loud voices in the GOP opposing any and all. What you, how concerned are you about where that stands? 
Look, I think it's concerning because funding U- Ukraine is incredibly important to our national security. I mean, when, when I sit on the Select Committee on China, and when we look at deterring war in the Pacific, at, at sending a message to China that they should not start a war over Taiwan, the number one issue is how we respond to Ukraine. So investing in Ukraine now is an investment in our national security now and into the future. And the reality is that most Republicans behind closed doors know this. As you pointed out, even when faced with a public vote last night, there were two amendments to strip Ukraine funding out of the bill. And an overwhelming majority of Democrats and Republicans voted to keep it in, to support Ukraine funding. I sit on the House Armed Services Committee. When we have behind closed doors briefings, we have classified briefings, the Republicans are almost unanimously supportive of Ukraine. But then they get out on TV the next moment and say something different. Mm-hmm. Then they play to their base, just like just like Kevin McCarthy is subservient to this extreme, dangerous wing of the Republican Party that's against Ukraine. And, and that's why we have this quandary. It's not because they don't believe in it. It's because they don't have the political courage to say it. And Congressman, lastly and, and briefly, please, the impeachment inquiry process into President Biden is beginning today in the House. There seems to be no evidence yet of any wrongdoing. Uh, What do you expect to happen today? What's the pushback? I mean, when you see Ken Buck, who's one of the most conservative Republicans I know, writing in the Washington Post that this impeachment inquiry is completely bogus, there's no evidence to support it. I mean, they're obviously just playing politics and they can't even get the government funded in the process. All right. Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, thank you so much for being here this morning. We'll hope you come back soon. Take care. Up next here on Way Too Early, we'll bring you more from last night's Republican primary debate, including the final responses that centered around a candidate who was not on the stage. You know who that is. And then coming up on Morning Joe, one of the debate participants, Republican presidential contender Chris Christie will be a guest. And also ahead, Republicans on the House Oversight Committee are set to lead the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Two Democratic members of the panel will join the conversation. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.